Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm alone in the studio today while Kate Wolf and Medea Ocher are away taking care of other things. So what we have for you today is a conversation with Morgan Jerkins that we taped at the LA Times Festival of Books. I really enjoyed this conversation, not only because, as you'll hear when we cut to it, just what an engaging and thoughtful and kind of electric interview she is. One of the things that I think I particularly enjoyed about this conversation is how Morgan walked through the relationship between vulnerability and self-questioning. She constantly talks about how she's a Gemini, and therefore she likes to talk a lot, and she also has this other voice in her head that all writers have. And I think actually all creative people people have that is the self-doubting voice or the self-challenging voice. And she talks really eloquently, I think, about how to resist that voice or how to both engage your vulnerability, but not allow that to be a barrier to writing about the things that matter most to you. So without further ado, let's cut right to that conversation. the LA Times Festival of Books with New York-based writer Morgan Jerkins. Jerkins' essays, which often address the intersections between race and gender and everywhere in between, have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Elle, The New Republic, and BuzzFeed, among others. Her first collection of essays, This Will Be My Undoing, was published earlier this year by Harper Perennial. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you for having me. So can we talk about what you are trying to do with this collection of essays, because they're personal stories, but they're also personal is political stories. So personal stories with a much larger kind of aim. Yeah, I mean, I knew that I wanted to write about black girlhood and womanhood, but I knew that I couldn't make it too claustrophobic as well, because I'm still in my 20s and I can't claim to be an expert on anything. So I have to, (laughs) you know, make sure I tie in some cultural commentary so that it doesn't seem too narrow in scope. Right. But You know, it's interesting what you say about the personal and the political because I could say I stepped outside of my house and I feel really good today and someone's going to say, oh, well, because she's a black woman, there's so much against her. Right, right, right. It's revolutionary for her to feel good. So I knew, I'm not going to say I resigned myself to this fact, but I just knew that whatever I say, because of the fact that I am marginalized, it's going to be automatically politicized. And that's Mm -hmm. not a bad thing, but it's just something that comes with the territory, I think. Just a condition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I ask you how you came to that kind of realization? Or like where your impulse to start writing came from when you were a kid, I assume, oh, right? Yeah. That's kind of where it starts. Yeah. And then like how did it evolve to this thing where you're like, all right, well now I understand. I write something personal and it's going to be political and that's how I treat it. Okay, so I that's got a big in- question. Yeah, no, no, that's good. <laughs> I got into writing as a place to hide. When I was in high school, I was bullied every single day and I was thank you. Which you write about I hate really high painfully, school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so like I didn't know how to express my anguish with that. So mm-hmm. I just decided to start writing. And so I started to write fiction as a way to create new worlds and people to make friends that way therapeutically. When I got my MFA at Bennington, mm-hmm. and that was through, I did fiction. I studied with people like Angie Cruz, Brian Morton, Alex Chi. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I started to get into nonfiction when I started to become more politically conscious, which was the senior year of my senior year of college. And so that's what I just started doing, was starting to freelance. And for me, I started to realize that I was going to get this question about the personal and the political, the personal versus the political, okay. because I saw other black writers get this type of question. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, it's either, how do you know 
what is the line between personal political? How much of a responsibility do you feel like you have to yourself and your subjective experience versus the black community as a whole? Sure. Which is another sure. interesting question I love to talk about. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I knew I was going to get this kind of question. It doesn't offend me. I think it just speaks to the society in which we all live. We think of something as a politically charged statement for marginalized people because they're often silenced. And so I'm not going to be the type of writer that's like, well, I'm offended by that question because my stuff isn't political. Well, because it is coming from some sort of place where I felt sure. shameful about something. And I don't live in a vacuum. So where did that shame come from? Yeah. Interesting. Can we also talk about your process as a writer? So in the book, you actually talk about how you're searching out a kind of new form, right? Something that gets narrative, that gets flipped and undone in the way that it can kind of only be yours. Yeah. So can you talk about both how you came to that type of style, right? So like, who are your influences? But also just at kind of a granular level, like, how do you work with the essay as a form? Right. So, you know, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Walter Mosley. Sure, Um, yeah. And he said, you know, a lot (laughs) of times people lie about their influences because they want people to think of a writer when they think of them. So I can tell you I'm influenced by James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Audre Lorde, Joan Didion, and I want you to think of them and then think of me as well. But I'm also influenced by, you know, those old Nickelodeon shows, you know, <laughs> with the overhead narratives with like the main characters oh, questioning yeah. themselves. Yeah, 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 Because yeah, yeah. I am a person who constantly questions herself almost to the point of exhaustion. I'm always not sure and I'm usually uncertain about things. I try to rationalize or over-intellectualize everything. And then I realized that maybe I can use that to my advantage as a writer to let you know that like I don't have all the answers but these are the questions that I have and what they do is that they reveal the nuances of a given situation and so I think you know if I do say so myself like my process as a writer is to take a situation understand that it's you know I'm subjective and it's flawed and someone can have a different opinion on it but to talk about these questions that arise from what I experienced and the emotions that I alone had to deal with or not deal with and why. What does that sound like? The voice in your head that questions yourself. It's incessant. It's incessant, but it's also like having a dialogue with myself. Mm-hmm. I am a proud Gemini, so I love talking. Oh, yeah. But for all you astrology folks on there, I'm also <laughs> Virgo rising. And what that means is I'm also like very particular, very perfectionistic, right? And so like I always have this internal dialogue. It also helps, you know, because I'm in therapy now, it's a way of self-care as well to constantly mm-hmm. be checking in with yourself. Why did you feel that way? And to put it in you know, in written format, it almost feels like a public confession of sorts, which feels good. Now, can you talk a little bit about part of at least my, so I'm a Libra, which is the, the, but that's like the worst part of what you're talking about, right? Which is the like weighing everything constantly Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. self-checking and to the point where you can do nothing, right? So how do you break through to kind of have the confidence to say, as you were saying before, I don't have all the answers, but like, I'm going to try to say something. Like, I'm going to give you the answers as I can get around them right now. Yeah, well, you know what? I think you got to fake it till you make it. I think especially... (laughs) That's good advice, I I think, yeah. And because, you know, when I was on my book tour, people would ask me, you know, how did you get past the fear to write about these very intimate subjects? And I said, I didn't. I just acknowledged it. I mean, it's one of those things where if you don't acknowledge it, it's just going to keep sitting on your shoulder until it's going to constantly weigh you down. You can't do what you want to do. It's going to paralyze you. And I always was afraid. But in terms of the fake it till you make it thing, I get very inspired by like Beyonce, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Even though Beyonce, she doesn't have to fake anything at this point. (laughs) Like, I think for me, it's like, 
I didn't get published in New Yorker for no reason. Nobody just took a chance on me because they felt sorry for me. Harper sure. Perennial didn't just take a chance on me because they felt sorry for me. They right. took a chance on me because they believed in what I can do and also what I have been Done. doing yeah. prior to that yeah. moment where they made an awkward, uh, an awkward, an <laughs> offer to... Uh, I think uh, they made it awkward. Offer yeah. <laughs> to acquire my book. And so for me, I just said to myself, listen, and often was like, listen, bitch. And I was like... You have one shot to be a debut, and there are so many books that get published in a week. Yeah, only yeah. a few command a certain amount of attention because of the digital age that we're all in. Our attention span is so minuscule. So, what is there going to be about your book? that when someone goes to a Barnes and Noble, they're not gonna go right past it. And I never wanted it to be a situation where I go to my own book in a store and I open up to, to a particular chapter and I'm like, man, I could have gone a lot harder than that and I didn't. So mm -hmm. I told myself, mm -hmm. you need to go hard. And luckily I also had editors who could tell when I was cutting corners psychologically and didn't want to go there. So it was the type of situation where it's like, you can't hold back now. You only got one chance for this. That's so funny. Because, okay, so I'm going to just reveal something that we talked about off air. Okay. I hope that's okay. But we were talking about going to the gym. Oh, yeah. And now that you say that, that you say like, oh, I'm, I turn to a page in the book and I want to see that I'm going hard. That totally makes sense. You just, you were saying that that's what you do at the gym too. Yeah, I mean, because I'm, I'm also a masochist. So like, <laughs> if I have to make myself the subject and I'm trying to tell you about, hey, this is a time where I didn't feel good about myself. This is how anti-blackness mm, permeates mm. black people. This is how I didn't feel good, you know, when people make me feel less of a woman because I'm opinionated, because I'm successful. If I have to put my own self on the line to make you see how visceral of an experience it is, so be it. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't yeah. bother me at all. I love that. I also, to return a little bit to Beyonce. Yeah, it just seems like a very, it's a vulnerable position to put yourself in in so many ways. Yeah, it is. I mean, the thing about it is, it's like, I had to question all of the things that I've been ashamed about and said, I'm going to give that shame back. You mm -hmm. see? So like, when people say to me, you know, how do you know if you've gone too far? Have you gone far enough? Mm. That's always a question mm. I want to bring back to, without sounding defensive, and I never do, because I understand where it's coming from. They're worried because yeah. I'm in my 20s and because I'm young and I might have a husband and kids someday and I might be embarrassed. But also I know it's because I'm a woman. Because if a man would have said a lot of the stuff that I said yeah. in there, they would have said, oh, this is revolutionary, this is badass. Brave, but because of, yeah. You know I'm brave, yeah. right? And people call me brave, but I also don't want people to think that whatever braveness I had just completely obliterates the fear because that's right. just a part of being a public figure I guess and, and a woman as well black woman too mm, you know mm, I mm. think you know being a woman you're expected to always be hyper aware of how you say something when you say it if you say it at all and also by being black you're expected to be a pillar for the community which yeah. often right. diminishes your own individual experience so when you have both race and gender and thinking about that as a writer and confessing these things that's a lot and so, like, I consider myself vulnerable, but I also think that's what draws people to my work. I wonder, as we kind of wrap up here, I want to know how you feel that dialogue about those particular kinds of intersections between identities has changed. Because on the one hand, we could go back to Audre Lorde Zami, even farther back than that, but mm -hmm. Zami is always like a great example for mm -hmm. me, of somebody talking about this as how sexuality and gender and race, like, pull together and class. Do you think that we've gotten better about talking about those things uh, now or especially I mean it's weird to talk about that now because it feels like we're both 
talking about them more publicly than mm-hmm. maybe we have before. Right. But it also feels like we're at this weird tipping point that I am frightened by a lot of the yeah. stuff that we see. Uh, I think it depends on who you ask. I mean, I personally see being in New York and being so entrenched in digital media and publishing circles that there is still a hunger for essay collections by black women and a lot of that can be attributed to Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist. That's part mm, of the reason why mm, I am here, okay. where I am, why I was published by the same imprint, because it showed that women of color, especially black women who write essay collections, are profitable. Yeah. So because of her, you have people like you know me, Morgan Parker, Mickey Kendall. Like There's so many other people that are coming out with essay collections now, or nonfiction, period, black sure. women. But I will say there is still a lot of criticism because in order to get into publishing, you usually have to be of a particular class. You know, right. I tell people all the time yeah I'm very lucky that 25 years old I published my first book but you have to still have to understand I graduated from college with no student loan debt I lived yes. at home yeah. rent free and I moved to New York and I already have money saved up from school so it's like there's a whole bunch of things you know at play you know I think that the conversations we can have I do believe that we are in the midst of like a black literary renaissance I do believe that yeah at the same time Getting more voices from those who are not from the Northeast, who didn't go to private schools or Ivy League schools, who came from working class backgrounds, I think those are still very much so needed. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now? So right now I'm trying to do an oral history of the 20th anniversary of Brandy's Never Say Never album. The reason why I'm doing it is because (laughs) I grew up in a musical family. My uncles are Rodney and Freddie Jerkins. When people don't seem to know that from my last name, even people I've worked with many times, they're like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, how many black people do you know with the last name Jerkins? (laughs) (laughs) Or from South Jersey? (laughs) So I'm trying to do that oral history now. So fingers crossed on that. I'm also working on two books. I have a two-book deal with HarperCollins, with Harper Books now. So one of it is nonfiction, the other one's a novel. Wait, can you tell me more about this oral history about Brandy's album? I'm talking, trying to get in touch with Brandy. Okay. I'm going to be talking to my mother, who was a songwriter on the album. Oh, talking to oh, my really? uncles. Okay. I'm just trying to recreate the history, because I was actually there when The Boy's Mind was recording. But I was young. I was like wow. six years old. So I have to get other people's voices in there to help fill in the obvious gaps. Well, oh, yeah, so wait, wait, what's your experience of that particular time because I think yeah. everybody of a certain age has a memory of that song usually like a middle school dance I, it was yeah, perhaps well, very embarrassing but I think my memories like I literally saw them going in and out of the booth recording <laughs> it right so I'm not new to Los Angeles I actually lived when my uncle was reaching that zenith of his career mm-hmm. I actually lived in the San Fernando Valley I was trying to be like a child actor no, I was really? doing commercial and stuff like that I was living yeah I was living in Woodland Hills so like I'm not unfamiliar with the area wait Okay. Um, I got a lot of fun stuff. I keep pulling stuff out of my head. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books at the University of Southern California. We've been speaking with Morgan Jerkins, author of This Will Be My Undoing. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're at the LA Times Book Festival. We have Ijeoma Aluo here, author of So You Want to Talk About Race. Ijeoma is going to give us a book recommendation. What are you going to recommend? I've been recommending Daniel Jose Oder's Shadow Shapers series to okay. a, a lot of people. They are such wonderful books. It's a young adult fantasy centered around an Afro-Latinx young woman, and it 
pulls in a lot of Afro-Latinx culture and mythology. It's exciting and it provides representation for young people of color and especially young women of color and young black women that we don't get to see. And they're just great books. I've read them multiple times and I am no longer a young adult. My children will tell you that. Um, and my 10-year-old and I are listening to the audiobook right mm -hmm. now and he's enjoying it so much. So I highly recommend it. I don't think any, I can't imagine anyone not loving it of any age. Wait, how did you discover it? I discovered it because I was following Daniel on Twitter mm -hmm. and I just loved what he had to say. And then the cover art for his book was so beautiful. Can you describe it? It's this young black woman and she's got these wild, beautiful curls and they have okay. all these different colors. And I had just given myself um, like a galaxy dye job and people oh. kept saying, you look just like the cover of this book. And I checked it out. I read the back and I was like, this is very intriguing. Uh -huh. And I immediately fell in love. And like every month after the first book came out, I was tweeting at him, when's the second book? When's the second book? When's the second book? <laughs> You've been harassing this person. I really have. And it's funny because I mean, I know how annoying it is when people ask me that question. But I was like, I don't yeah. care. I feel like I have, as another writer, I have rights. <laughs> And my rights are to be able to read this book sooner rather than later. This poor man is just sitting at home being like, what? Will she leave me alone? Exactly. I'm exhausted. Um, okay. And tell us the title again and the author. It's the Shadow Shaper series mm -hmm. by Daniel Jose Odera. And there's two books so far. And I'm hoping, if you're listening, that there will be a third one soon. Even though I do know he's working on some newer books for younger audiences as well, which I'm very oh. excited to get for my younger son. That sounds fantastic. We'll send it to him personally so that he gets a move on. Thank you again, Ijeoma. That was Ijeoma Aluo, author of So You Want to Talk About Race, recommending a book for us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Morgan Jerkins, author of This Will Be My Undoing. Can you tell us more about being a child actor? Well, was that your decision? Was that something you wanted? People just said she's a really effervescent child, so why don't you like get her in the commercials? And like I was doing some, I did like auditions in New York. I didn't even know what I was there for. I just like went in front of people, started talking, and then like <laughs> they got. I did like an, I did like a kids commercial, and then I did for like what? an Blues Clues. Oh, Blues Clues. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. Did and then did you watch Blues Clues? Were you excited? Yeah, were you but like, I didn't oh my know god? What was really going on? Like <laughs> right. people were like putting stuff on my face. Like I don't really like. I, I don't know. Well, then much. it's like just dress up, kind yeah. of. Like it's like let's just play. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of fun facts. I just don't like to brag about it too much, but like I Is no, that no, no, be... excuse me. You're gonna have to brag about it for a little bit. Okay, so you did Blues Clues. Yeah. And then what was your next big hit? Well, I did like Albertson's commercials. I don't know if Albertson is still alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have Albertson's, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I did that and I don't know what else I did. All I think about is like all the famous people I met while I lived at the apartment complex that I lived in. Is that gonna be in the oh. second nonfiction book? Oh no. These kind of experiences. I, I might talk about it when I do the oral history thing about how I even came out here. Oh, right. I see, I see. But yeah, it was a fun time. Can um, I tell, let me tell another anecdote? Yeah. Yes, all right, please. so one, another anecdote was I remember I met Madonna one time. This was when Lourdes was a baby. And she gave <laughs> wow. me a bracelet. 
And I, my mother said to give her the bracelet before I went to City Walk. Was City Walk still around here or no? I no? don't know. No, okay. I don't think we have so that. So City Walk is like, it was like this nice place, like movie theaters or whatever. And I didn't give it to her. And I went to the movie theater and I lost it. Oh, my God. You lost a bracelet that, that was I, given to you. How did you feel? Were you okay? I was like, what? I mean, as well, How long did it take you to tell your mom that you lost it? Oh, I mean, it wasn't on my, it wasn't on my wrist anymore. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she, she knew what was going to happen. Like, I mean, <laughs> luckily, it wasn't like an expensive. It was like yeah, a little right. jewel. Be- yeah, it wasn't like whatever. So how did you, what, how did you transition out of acting? Were you like, I, I'm just finished with this? I think, my, I think my, from what my mother told me, I don't know if this is true or not. She just, I just like, I don't want to do it anymore. Uh-huh. And mm. I don't, and my life would have been so much more different if I would have stayed out here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you imagine what it might have been like? Uh, I probably would have been like try doing more acting, but I probably would have gotten bored because I need to be. I probably would have loved to do more school because I love school. Yeah. So I was like, even though I was being homeschooled, I was like, nah, I want to know more. Like, you know what I mean? I like yeah. institutionalized study. Yeah. You know. I Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I am kind of interested to hear, since one of the things that you talk about in your book is how daunting it was to write about Lemonade and an assignment that you got for yeah. L. So I want to talk, one, about experiences that are very difficult and very difficult to translate into the written form, right? To take something that's total, I usually describe this as like the shape of a ring and make it a line. And then I also want to hear from you what you thought about the what they call Beychella, right? So her performance and the way that, how radically democratizing in, I guess, one reading of that performance it was that it's live streamed. It was both for the audience, but for millions of people that were watching. Yeah. One of the things that's hard to do as a black writer is to write about experiences that hit you in a very emotional place that in order that it but just by the act of trying to rationalize it it sort of waters down how powerful it was for you in the immediacy of that moment so Wait, what me, do you mean when you say trying to rationalize like it, it just say okay oh, so, for, so for example right like if i say all right lemonade it hit me in a certain place because you have this woman who's going through like all these emotions hmm, and sure. i have to write a thousand to fifteen hundred words on it where i know it's going to be edited by someone who probably does not look like me right and i'm trying to explain them and feel just the way that i felt about this mm-hmm. and maybe i'm thinking too hard now but that's always so difficult yeah to mm-hmm. do like oh like it was just great you know what i mean i don't know how to say it in a way unless you inhabit my body I don't know how right. to put it in right. ways that are eloquent, even though I'm, I'm I'm trained to do this. So that was always hard. Um, and that's not, and that's just eliminated all, many different types of situations. Um, well, I, well, it's hard to write about something you love. Yeah, right? right? Like, I because remember... you have to intellectualize it in a way that doesn't necessarily include whatever overwhelming emotion you it's might It's, like, even deeper for. than that, I well, think. No, it's deep, like, I'll, yeah. I'll give you another example. So when, when Get Out mm-hmm. was released... I watched Get Out 10 o'clock at night at Harlem Magic Johnson Theater, right? So anybody who's black is listen, listeners know exactly what I'm talking about, why I emphasize that. So the climactic moment, right, where he has his, he, he is on top of Rose and he has his, he has his hands like clutched around her throat and the police car pulls up. Every black person in the theater gasped. Yeah. And in that moment, right, I knew what it was like to be black. Because all of us knew why we did that. We didn't have to guess. We didn't have to rationalize. We just did mm-hmm. it. And it didn't matter if the person next to me was from Kentucky or whatever. We all gasped at the same moment. And yeah, we could say, why do we gasp? Because it's the it's 
you know, because of the Black Lives Matter movement and also because, like, police brutality. But it's, it's, it's a little bit deeper than that because you knew that he wasn't going to win. One of the biggest symbols of protection, we knew we could not be, we we're not going to be protected. Yeah, yeah. Right. And we all were scared for his life when we shouldn't have been, right? Yeah. Right. So those are the moments where it's like, if someone asked me to write a thousand, fifteen hundred words on that singular moment, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like, how do I even like? Because mm, it's such a it's such a feeling thing. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. It's like to just even put it to words. It's like, am I going? Something's gonna be lost in translation. That's what it is. And also right. for the Bay Chella thing, I mean, I didn't watch the whole performance. I was in Las Vegas <laughs> last weekend, and I did not watch the full thing. But I think when it comes to Beyonce, I think what's interesting about her as a performer is that we haven't heard her speak in a very long time. I, we haven't heard a profile of hers in a very long time. She just gives us her her work and then just leaves. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting the way in which like she just commands attention like that. She has complete control over her, the whole narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think we've seen anything like that, especially not from a black performer. Not while we're alive, you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you and think? I, huh? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think, and I also, I actually can't stand when people compare Beyonce to Michael Jackson. I just, I hate when people do that, because for me, it's like, why can't you just recognize that in their particular times they were the biggest performers ever? Michael Jackson didn't have to deal with streaming services in the way that Beyonce did. Yeah. Michael Jackson didn't have to deal with the pressure of releasing a full album. When you have leaks happening all the time, yeah, he didn't live in that era. So to try to compare right. like Thriller to uh, Lemonade or Beyonce, I, just, I hate it. But also traffics in that like flattening of experience That's what that I'm is saying. like as I'm if like, like oh well, it's the same thing that I feel when like somebody's like uh, oh you should meet so and so you'll get to you'll get along really well because you're both gay. It's like that. That's not the same. But experience, also like you, you but know? then like trying to set up this competition. You know what right, I'm saying? Right, but a competition like, that flattens two incredibly unique Right, that's talents, what I'm saying. Right? That's what I'm saying. So I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh. oh. Just yeah. enjoy Thriller and Lemonade together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Put it, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Although I've also been thinking, you know, there's that new documentary that's coming out um, about, or it may already be out actually in some theaters in L.A. Uh, I forget the name of it, but it's the documentary about Grace Jones. Oh my God, um, I love and Grace I Jones. I cannot wait to you see it. You need to right? read her memoir. Oh, I have, I have oh it. Is that the one that it's like? What? It I will never write my memoir. Yeah, I would never write my. Listen, memoir. you have yeah. to read that. Yeah, that's definitely you. on my like. I'm in the midst of a writing project right now, but immediately after I finish it, it is that's so on my good. Top of my and list. see, she talk about me being open. She is <laughs> really. There's this one thing I I I, I uploaded. To, I took a picture of it to my Twitter page, and it's a little bit TMI. But she basically said she's really tired of misogyny. Like men are like, oh well, we're worried this person's gonna get too emotional, gonna get her period. And she's like, this is exactly why I want to penetrate at each and every man so they can know <laughs> what it's like to or like to yield. And I was like, what the? she said it a lot more graphic than that. Yeah, yeah. But That's I was amazing. like, but great. Of course, Grace Jones would say that. I actually okay. This is this is also interesting but in, in the, maybe TMI but in the same vein is that I, I had a friend who um, I had dinner with and she she works at a company she's one of the only women sort of uh, on the same level as the other men she's also a woman of color and so she had recently learned about pegging from, oh my god from Broad oh my city. god and she was like 
she had the, she had a really interesting reaction to it, which she was like, "I have never seen anything more empowering in my life." And I was like, "Why? Like what?" Because <laughs> because she was like, "Because now I know when I walk into a room, I can fuck every man in there." <laughs> I love that. And I was like. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's wow. Like, she was like, because I'm always the one. Otherwise, who could be fucked? Well, I mean, well you know what? <laughs> I actually read a Reddit post by a man who identified as straight, but he was like, the one time where I was penetrated, I understood something on another level of I what it means. <laughs> so why are we having this discussion? I don't know how we ended up here. It's great but, job. Anyway, yeah. But wasn't that, an, it was like, I was, I had never thought of that before. Because of the, uh, the idea of submission sense. really takes on another format when someone else enters your body. Yes, right. absolutely. If you, if you yeah. ever listen to Food for Thought podcast, you should. No, tell oh, me. Yeah, yeah. Food for Th- Th- yeah. Okay. Not thought it's as It's Tommy in, Pico yeah, and I forget the yeah, other guys it's, on there. It's amazing. Oh. If you ever want to hear about books, shout out to all of them. If you ever want to hear about books, about sex, sexuality, Rihanna. Yeah, I was recently should... re- listening to their Body Adi Adi um, episode. It's, oh. it's really, it's really yeah. good. They're great. Like, I learned so much from queer men, man. Interesting. I, I, the reason I was really excited about you talking about Brandy is, do you ever listen to the Read? Oh my God, are you kidding? Okay. Me? <laughs> yes, so I listen I to like the Read. There is, oh my God. so much drama. Yeah. In the yeah. Brandy household, number one, between <laughs> Brandy and Monica, number two. But like, <laughs> that's why I was like, wait a minute, you were there at the making of it. Hey, I, but you see, you know what the fuck? You, you know what? Like, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> but like, but no, but I also yeah, I, she I, was six. We have to remember. Six. No, she but like, I, but I even think even as like a kid, when I think about Brandy's influence in a way, like I wish someone would just do a full thing on Brandy. Period. Mm. Because if you think about it. Brandy was not a light-skinned girl. She had braids mm-hmm. in her hair. Yeah. She had her own Barbie doll. She was Cinderella. You know she what was I a TV mean? Like, star, it, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. I was thinking about, it and I was like, can somebody just write a full thing on this woman because she needs to get her due. It's great. We've been speaking with Morgan Jerkins, author of This Will Be My Undoing. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Morgan. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution, and the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. 